Hello, I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm very excited to be recording my podcast, The Literary Life from the Miami Book Fair. This is our 35th anniversary, and we're going to have a very special time together as we'll be talking to some of the most interesting, important, and timely authors writing today. Writers like Tina Brown, Tiari Jones, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and Pete Souza. So join me for this special edition of The Literary Life, recorded at this year's Miami Book Fair. My guest today is Tina Brown. I can't imagine anyone epitomizing just what the literary life is better than Tina Brown. As a reporter, author, magazine publisher, and editor, pioneer in the online world, and champion of writers, she's not only helped us understand the intricacies of the world we live in, but does it with a unique brand of inquisitiveness and invention, making all of us all the smarter for it. In many ways, I see Tina Brown as a cultural producer, orchestrating the most talented among us, recognizing how each of their creative and intellectual tools can help us all make sense of things, while at the same time keeping us keenly interested. Tina's here to help kick off the 35th Miami Book Fair. That's right, 35 years. Hard to believe. And we're celebrating the paperback edition of her most recent book, The Vanity Fair Diaries. It was named one of the best books of 2017 by Time, People, The Guardian, Pace Magazine, The Economist, and Entertainment Weekly, as well as Vogue. The book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, is organized around the daily diaries Tina kept during her eight years running Vanity Fair. I can't recommend it enough. It's funny, insightful, and it's just what you might expect coming from Tina Brown. Welcome. It's such a pleasure having you So nice to be here, really. What a nice introduction. Thank you. I meant every word of it. (laughs) And we can't thank you enough for helping us celebrate our 35th anniversary. You know, one of the quotes that I found about you that seems so true uh, goes something like this. And I might not have gotten it completely accurate, so I apologize. But it's, Tina is a pioneer, entrepreneur, and this is what I love. She smells, she breathes, and she tells us what's going on. Uh, Another is that Tina embraces the high and low with equal passion. And I think all through your career, that's what you've done. Can you tell tell us a little bit from the Tatler, how you got from the Tatler to Vanity Fair? Well, yes. I mean, I've always been a kind of omnivore of the culture and, and devout it sort of from the high and the low, as you say. When I took over the Tatler, that was in 1979, actually. I was 25 in the UK. And that was the time when Margaret Thatcher had just taken over and, you know, it was a whole moment when the Tories were back after a long time in the wilderness. And we got to kind of cover the rise, discover her really as well, of Princess Diana. She became our story. So we covered Diana. We owned that story. And, uh, you know, Diana was to the Tatler what OJ was to CNN. (laughs) We wrote that story. And, you know, from there to to Vanity Fair in the 80s, you know, I had this great vehicle, in a sense, to look at American culture as an outsider. And I do think that being British was actually helpful because I saw stories everywhere. It hit me anew, everything about it, from what, you know, even even the New York Times to me was an alien beast, you know, (laughs) because I'd come from the British newspaper world where they have this plural press, where the tabloids are these wickedly irreverent, you know, uh, sort of very uh, 
uh, iconoclastic magazines. And a lot of that culture just, you know, was, was in me to sort of review American culture from a different point of view. And, and the thing that you're probably too modest to talk about is that you completely turned around the fortune of the Tatler as well. It was a magazine that was struggling. Well, yeah, Tatler was a little fading shiny sheet when I took it over. And um, um, I redesigned it and reinvented it and really tried to create something that was uh, a literary magazine that also had some flash and dash to it. And, and I've always tried to do that. I mean, we combined really good writers. I mean, Tatler actually had tremendous writers working, working well, for it. Yeah, I mean, you, Julian Barnes was, right. our, was our food critic. We had Martin <laughs> Amos writing for us, Wilbur right. and Tremendously good writers. I did a lot of the writing under various pseudonyms because we had a very small budget. And in fact, our motto was, if you haven't got a, get a, got a budget, get yourself a point of view, which is still very <laughs> That's true. That's a great motto, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we had no budget. And then I took over Vanity Fair. That was another crisis. You know, It was falling apart. It was totally point. falling apart. I was the third editor in a year. Uh, they launched it with huge fanfare, but then... You know, it was a turkey, and I was brought in to try to reinvent it at warp speed before it closed. And I absolutely love that experience of being sort of up against it. I, I like that. It, it gets yeah. my creative juices running. Well, what always attracted me, what's always attracted me to everything that you do is that you've been able to blend remarkable writers with remarkable photographers. And so your magazines have always had that, the highest quality whether it's talking about low culture or, I mean, popular culture or something higher. It's always been the best of the best. Well, I've, I've got a strong visual sense. And I do believe that, it, you know, one doesn't have to be a snob about being attracted to things that are beautiful, glamorous, great looking, nor does it mean that then the rest of it can't be very high tone. You know, you can combine terrific literary writing with a very with a lot of panache on the visual side. And in fact, you need both to get those readers over the, the, well, the sort of question of should they buy it or not. You certainly did that at Vanity Fair. Am I mistaken, but was one of the first covers a kind of black and white photograph of Susan Sontag? No, that cover? was not my cover, of course. Well, that that was, wasn't your that's cover. That's what I was rebelling against. That's what you rebelled against. Because I, when I came in, they were doing these black and white these photographs and white. of writers. And my feeling is writers should be read and not seen. Exactly. Right? No one is going to buy a picture of, uh, you know, an Philip Roth's nostril, you know, in, in <laughs> black and exactly white. Right. But he's one I of was the great... Gonna, <laughs> I was going to ask you, what made you change from that photograph? <laughs> well, it made me change because I thought it's not appealing. I want to read yeah. Philip Roth, but I don't want to look at that. It's, that picture is not going to make me buy right. the magazine. What we decided to do was to really tap into the kind of rising excitement of um, both Hollywood and and sort of the social world that was exploding under the Reagans, really, and turn that into the kind of defining of the era that Vanity Fair became. Well, and talk about that. I mean, there are some iconic covers and some iconic stories that you did. Uh, I can. There's clearly the Lady, you know, Lady Diana stories that sure. that you owned at Vanity Fair, just like you did at the Tatler. But there was also the very, very famous. I remember I was a bookseller at the time. We couldn't keep it on the stands, but the Demi Moore pho uh, photograph. Can yeah. you talk a little yes, bit about that? Yes, I can. That? I mean, my great. Uh, joy was to work with people of the caliber of Annie Leibovitz, Hilma Newton, um, Herb Ritz, these great photographers at Vanity Harry Fair. Benson Harry Benson. Well. 
And it was always a great collaboration. You know, I, I work well with photographers and I feel it's as important as spending your time talking to writers is to also get those photographers to really bring their own creativity to it. So Annie particularly and I have formed a great partnership working a lot together. The Demi Moore cover came at a moment, it was just actually at the very end of the 80s. I had been kind of musing and worrying about the fact that I did want to take uh, the magazine out of the 80s and make a statement that we were now entering the 90s. And... We, I, wanted to, I wanted to do a piece that really defined that, but I was really thinking of an article, and I never realized it was going to be a photograph right. that did that for us. But we were due to photograph Demi Moore for the cover subject that month in uh, 1990. And, uh, you know, she, we'd heard she was pregnant, so what you tended to do at that time was to photograph the star from head to waist, and you didn't do the pregnant body. It just wasn't what people right. seem to want from their stars, right? So I just had a baby and I said, I was feeling very mutinous about wearing maternity clothes and the whole the whole hassle of it all. And I said to uh, Annie Leibovitz, you know, why don't you show the pregnant stomach in a, you know, a tight dress? You, had, you saw the photograph. Well, I, I told her that let's do this. Okay. Let's have Demi Moore photographed with a tight dress over her with stomach. With a dress. So Annie, the great joy of Annie is that she always goes one further. So she goes off and takes the picture and she comes back with the pictures. I look at the pictures. The picture with her in the dress is there. It looks good. But Annie has that look on her face, you know, and she says, I said, is there something else? And she said, yes, there is. She said, there is this other picture that I really did just for Demi and Bruce Willis, her husband. I said, show me. And it was the picture, of course, of Demi Moore naked and pregnant, which is just incredible. I mean, it was so clearly a revolutionary image, oh. you know? I mean, it was a liberated image for all women, you know, to be able to say, I'm proud of my fertility. I want to celebrate how I look pregnant. And I loved it so much. But then I had to persuade the circulation department who said that they were going to have to get Walmart to sign off on it. Walmart did not sign oh, off on sure. it. They <laughs> absolutely said no way. So I said, okay, we'll shrink wrap it and we'll put it in with the porn magazines because I'm not going to be deterred <laughs> from using this cover. And that's exactly what we did. And it which probably course, sold more it, copies. It, it, it just flew off the newsstand. <laughs> I mean, it was one of the... And in fact, it became a really iconic image. And uh, even to this day, it is used. Well, and I of saw course, Serena Williams took yeah, a photograph yeah, like stars, that. Stars, ever since then, a pregnant star has wanted to do right. their Demi Moore shot. Right, right. And Annie must have taken a dozen of them with stars since. Well, and that, and 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 if that were the only cover of Annie Fair during your period, that would have been pretty earth shattering. But there were many others. I mean, there was the, the Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I think it was what do they call it? The Ronald Reagan kiss. The Ronald Reagan kiss. That was uh, one of the covers that actually helped to give us that first liftoff. It was one of the early successes that we did. That was with the great Harry Benson and uh, Harry Benson. And I were going to the White House to photograph the Reagans. We'd got this photo shoot agreed. But Harry, who, like Annie, is very, very creative, he decided to take with him a boombox, a big, which really dates me, this big, huge cassette player. And in this cassette player was Nancy with the laughing face, the, you know, the, the, the Frank Sinatra right. uh, tape of her singing, of him singing Nancy with the laughing face. And so when the Reagans arrive, you, they, we set up in this room, this antechamber, which Harry, you know, set up with a white screen and so on, and you could hear the Reagans arriving, you hear the rustle of the Secret Service people and they were on their way and we were going to take a picture as they headed in for dinner. And as they came in, Harry hits the boombox and it starts playing Nancy with a laughing face. And they're in their dinner jacket and she's in her Galanis black beaded gown and they were obviously going to this very grand dinner. And Nancy says to Ronnie, oh darling, that's they're playing our song, literally. 
let's dance. So they danced. And right they started there. dancing. And the two of them do this foxtrot all around the, you know, this room with Harry and I just gobsmacked. Harry, of course, jumping up and down. He's a very excitable Scotsman, actually. And he was jumping up and down going, Mr. President, give your wife a kiss. And Reagan leans in and he does give her this kiss, this incredible smooch. It's like a, something out, literally out of a, the end of an old Hollywood movie. Faces coming together. Screaming. I urge people to look it up. It's I an mean, amazing thing. It's an amazing photograph. thing. And so I, I'm standing there thinking we have our cover. You know, right. we have the most amazing cover. And, of course, it, it was an enormous success. And it was. And, yeah. then, and then there were the writers. And then yes. there were the stories. Yes. I mean, I recall, I mean, you introduced Gail Sheehy. Yes. To, you know, to that. One of the things that I used to love to read, and I actually got wrapped up in one of them, which was kind of ironic, was the political, psych- psychological, yeah. political things that you yeah, would do. Yeah, she pioneered a whole new kind of magazine right. journalism, which is to really do these deep dives into the the uh, the candidates' life, psyche, you know, personal outlook on the world. And one of her greatest, best pieces that she did was about Gary Hart. Yeah, in and fact, I was in that piece. Really? And in fact, I kept you from getting sued. <laughs> what tell happened? Tell me how. I'll tell you what happened. It was the wildest story. So I'm a young bookseller. And um, I, get, I have a friend, you know, David Reef is a yes. good friend of mine. And he was writing a book about Miami. So he must have given my name to Gail. And as she's reporting that piece. So she asked me about Turnberry Isle, right. which is where, you know, he went out on that boat. Mm-hmm. And Turnberry Isle at that time in the early 80s and from the time I grew up, which I grew up in Miami, was always the place where the slick gold chain guys hung out and all of that. And I said something. And I was young and kind of I didn't measure my words very well. And I think I said something like, well, the crazy thing about that story is not so much that he went out on the monkey business, but that he was hanging out at Turnberry Isle with all those other sleazy guys. <laughs> and so... Perfect. After, I'm sure that went right into the story. It went right in the story. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And then about a week after the magazine came out, the owners of Turnberry Isle got me on the phone with their lawyer to see if I had actually said that. And I completely owned up to saying it. I and said, yes, happened? nothing, they, nothing. They sort of dropped so it. Funny. I think they were looking to see whether or not, it, you know, these quotes were manufactured. Well, They've they never just, talked they... to me since. But yeah. <laughs> And you haven't had many dinners at Turnberry Isle. <laughs> the, there's a new movie out now with Hugh Jackman. Yes, I know. Playing Gary Hart. It brought it all back to me, you know, that whole period of Gail reporting those pieces. Of course, another one of the great really the great find uh, that we made at Vanity Fair was of Dominic Dunn. Oh, uh, boy, and that's right. Dominic Dunn I meet, and the diaries writes about my first meeting with Dominic. Um, I'm having dinner with my friend Marie Brenner, the Vanity Fair writer, and she has this producer there, this film producer, who had fallen on hard times. And he was talking to me about this tragedy that had happened, which is that his daughter had been murdered and he was going out to L.A. for her, the trial of the murderer. And I, I was absolutely beguiled by this guy. I thought, you know, he has such a great voice and he's such a great storyteller. If only he could put this on the page. He has such an eye for detail. And I said, why don't you keep a diary of the trial? Because it might lead to something that Vanity Fair could publish. And right. He did, and it was so clear when the piece came in that this guy was an extraordinary writer. We signed him up. He was the first writer that I signed up, and he wrote the very first cover story about Hollywood and the Oscars. And, that was and quite so a story. And uh, he became really the defining voice of the magazine. 
And he became the defining voice of culture, you know, yeah. of that kind of culture of that yeah. period. He then he went on to write many books, many books, novels. I mean, he became a really um, an iconic writer, and uh, but he had this marvelous voice. And I, I, you know, in the diaries I write about actually that about how finding writers, it's all about that voice, you know, and how you can you can teach a writer to write a lead. Uh, but you can't teach the writer how to think or how to what or to notice the right things. You know, if somebody goes into a room, it can be the richest scene that you've ever seen. They could be in Trump's antechamber right. and seeing everything. But unless they've got the ability to really see, you know, and really remember and to see the details, it's not going to be interesting. So that gift of being able to notice the right things is really what makes a writer. It's what makes an editor and a publisher yes. as well, well to be able is... to recognize that. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Literary Life, and we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to The Literary Life from the Miami Book Fair, and I'm here with uh, Tina Brown. And uh, Tina, you know, one of the things I, you know, in, in reading this and in reading other things about you, I know that your parents had a great influence on you mm -hmm. as well, and particularly your father who's involved mm -hmm. with film. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I was raised uh, by, uh, in, in England, uh, I grew up in, a, uh, in the country uh, near Henley-on-Thames, which is about an hour or so from London. And my father was a movie producer, and he produced uh, those sort of British comedies, the Agatha Christie films, and um, he 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 had a very sort of wide, uh, voracious uh, approach to material. And my mother was uh, worked for Laurence Olivier until she married my father, and so the two of them were very sort of um, interested in uh, creativity stories. Uh, my father was always looking for material; he saw everything as a basis for material. And so did I. You know, I just grew up following that that lead in a sense. And um, I went to a series of boarding schools, and I was actually expelled three I know, times. You were quite rebellious. <laughs> I was extremely rebellious, but my parents were wonderful about sort of <laughs> always seeing it from my point of view. I mean, they. Were you? How, how did the rebellion well, the, play itself out? I mean, it out? wasn't about stuff like drugs or you know meeting boyfriends or anything. It was purely that I just had a lot of attitude. I was just mouthy and and you know insubordinate and just considered like get her out of here you know and I read I at one point I, I I led a rebellion because I was so annoyed that they told us in this really posh boarding school that we had to wear two pairs of underwear <laughs> and that they and that that we had to can only change the outer pair three times a week oh my god just, just it just annoyed me you know and as so it as it should <laughs> so I led a demonstration across the lacrosse pitch uh, with placards saying and knickers <laughs> out 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 <laughs> And I was, it was me that was out, unfortunately. I was, I, my parents were summoned. I was told to pack my case and, and out I went. But the great thing about my father was he would always say to the uh, head teacher, it must be terrible for you to have failed with this talented child. I mean, how do you feel about this uh, failure of yours? It's an unconditional love, a, a great complete, thing. But of course he would, you know, give me hell once I was yeah. gone in the car. But his whole stance, he always had my back. They both did. They absolutely had my back. Right. Mm. But to talk about also, I read somewhere, you and the Beatles and your relationship with oh, the yeah. Beatles. He, he, took, he, he took you to he the took Beatles me to see, Yes, I mean, uh, Twickenham Studios, where my father often was making movies, uh, they were filming Help with the Beatles. 
And Great movies. Oh, my God. And I was obsessed, of course, like everybody else. Were you, you were John or, or I was Paul? John. Oh, I was John all John. the way. All the way. In fact, I can still remember the day my mother broke it to me that he was married. <laughs> <laughs> because he'd kept his wife, Cynthia, at that time, Cynthia Lennon, very much in the background before. <laughs> so that was a... I can still see it to this day when she told me. But going to see the Beatles at Twickenham was a, such an, a, an incredible experience. Of course, I was obsessed with John, but it was Paul who came over and was really nice to me, as Paul always was, right? Right. He still is. And he seems. still is. Still I saw him recently, guy. actually, at an event in L.A., and he was exactly the same as he was then. Right. You know, Did you see that? I think it was uh, the thing with James Corden, Corden yes. where he goes and he goes back to all his old haunts. Yes. He seems like such a game guy. He's such it's, a game man. It's really terrific. So... So we got you up to Vanity Fair, and I know that's the focus of this book. So, but then you did something else. You went to the New Yorker, correct, and helped turn that around. Well, a lot of the uh, last bit of the diaries actually is my inner kind of debate about whether I should leave Vanity Fair and go to the New Yorker because the New Yorker was also owned by Conde Nast, uh, by Cy Newhouse, the chairman who um, had brought me to America to do Vanity Fair. And he acquired The New Yorker then, uh, four or five years into my being in the US. And he put a new editor in and that didn't work out. So I never expected to be offered that job, nor did I particularly want it. I was obsessed with Vanity Fair, all things Vanity right. Fair. And I didn't really see myself uh, as attracted to The New Yorker as I was to Vanity Fair. But he kept coming back to me when it wasn't going well to sort of dangle it at me. And I began to think about it. And I went to the library and took out uh, the old copies of The New Yorker from the 30s. Mm. And I looked at what it had been like, um, 20s and 30s, in its formative years. And the early magazine, by, uh, which was edited by Harold Ross, the founding editor, I really found a completely different magazine to the one that it became. And it was became a great magazine, but under Harold Ross, it was far more irreverent, far more um, sort of newsy, actually. The pieces were a different mix of lengths. Uh, the visuals were very strong. I mean, they had amazing covers right. by people like Peter Arno and uh, Charles Adams. And, right. you know, it was a much more bold visual feel. Uh, a lot of the uh, cartoons, for instance, were full page in those early... Right. Harold Ross magazines. And when I read those, I thought, this speaks to me. I want to do Harold Ross's New Yorker. This is what I want to do. And you did. You and got did. some resistance yeah, at the beginning. I did. I did. And I took it much more back in that direction. I had yeah. all these amazing new um, artists uh, for, for cover. I, I gave the cartoonists right. a huge amount of free reign. And I brought in, I let go maybe 70 people and brought in 40. You brought in David Remnick, David right? Remnick, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. I, who was yeah. uh, at Early Discovery. Um, <laughs> Jeffrey Tubin, who was a young yeah. a, a district attorney. Um, Adam Gopnik, I gave a whole new sort of assignment to. Jane Mayer, I brought in to write about, to be our investigative reporter. We really had an amazing roster and, of writers, and, and they're still there, of course. And what was wonderful is a lot of the old-timers understood exactly what you were trying to do. John Updike. And, yes, and I got on very well with the old-timers. You know, it was one of those things where there was this thing about the old guard, again, I really disapprove. And at first, I mean, they were all full of trepidation. I mean, this was the editor who'd just done the Demi Moore naked right. cover, right? And they were all convinced at first that I was going to come in and do that to The New right. Yorker. But, you know, I have a lot of different strings to my bow. And actually, one of the reasons I left The New Yorker was Vanity Fair was because I wanted to do something else, right. which really took me back to my more literary roots, actually. So they, the, the old guard, uh, as they were called, uh, people such as John Updike, Janet Malcolm, uh, Roger Angel, I mean, these guys 
actually were wonderful with me. And we had a, one, a great time. They enjoyed the new blood. You know, they enjoyed the shake-up. They enjoyed the fact as well that they came to see the people I was, was hiring at the time were just as exciting as the people that, you know, had been the original New Yorker. I mean, when they saw me hiring people like Remnick and, and uh, Gladwell and so on, I mean, it was so obvious that they were so talented. Anthony Lane was another of my uh, discoveries from London that the atmosphere changed. And soon after really about three years, um, there was no longer an old guard and a new guard. It was just one incredibly right. uh, talented and excited staff. Yeah, no, you, and, and it's hard for people, young people, particularly today, to understand the importance of a really great magazine when it came out. It was a real event when a magazine was published. Well, I still feel The New Yorker really is... It still is. It's still an event. I mean, for yeah. me anyway, I mean, it's still... We read it sometimes online now. Though. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant magazine. And, it, and it's gone on to, to diversify in ways that I had wanted to do all those years ago. So it's it's a terrific uh, success. Even though I enjoyed what you did at Talk, I think we can skip over Talk a little bit, <laughs> unless you want to say something about Harvey Weinstein, who was not a that very nice That was not my best career judgment, <laughs> yeah. I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, but you did, it was really quite well, actually, wonderful I can tell you that, what you well, did. Talk had some of my best stuff in it. Yeah, and again, no, it we, had, we had amazing people who went on to then do great stuff. Yeah. I mean, some of my earliest, my early political reporters at Talk uh, were Jake Tapper, yeah. uh, Tucker Carlson, <laughs> who was somewhat different in those days. Uh, you know, these were, these were pretty good, talented people. And uh, they went on to do great things. Well, and then the other thing that I was glad when you moved over here, your husband also felt comfortable coming over here as well. And, and Harry Evans, many might not know, but Harry Evans, among being just a remarkable newspaper man, for me as a bookseller, was just a remarkable publisher. What he did at Random House at the time he was there, you know, was kept me afloat for a number of years. Yeah, well, Harry is so gifted. I mean, uh, he has this incredible energy. You know, he is England's most celebrated editor. He was actually voted uh, amongst his peers as the greatest editor ever, which was very exciting. Uh, but he loved publishing too, yes. And he came over and uh, that was a wonderful period when he was doing Random House and I was doing The New Yorker and, um, you know, and you we, had young we were both kids lucky. Up. And we had young kids, but he was always so supportive of right. me, you know. And, yeah. um, you know, you hear that a lot, oh, someone is so supportive. But in my case, you know, he really, he's just always like, when I was, for instance, offered the job at Vanity Fair, he didn't say, well, what am I going to do in England? You know, he said, you right. know what, I'll just, I'll go and teach at, you know, Duke University till and we get something figured out. While, and, yeah. you know, I'll come. And that was it. And we shut up the shop and came. He was also marvelously supportive of independent booksellers. Yeah. He, he just, he was always curious about what we were doing. And he came to the book fair a number of well, times. Well, he's a passionate well. reader, passionate writer, right. public, passionate editor. You know, he is a man who lives for books. I mean, he's even in, in the shower he's reading. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, do you collaborate? To this day. Do you, constantly, you, you know, constantly. constantly. I mean, he just about... did a book review for the New York Times, actually, about a first uh, history of the period of um, uh, First World War period. And, you know, I was, I, I always look at his stuff and edit it and he always looks at my stuff and edits mine and we are each other's best critics yeah, without doubt that's wonderful and then you know i mean when i'm going through this with your career it's awe-inspiring it's almost remarkable to think that you then discovered you were one of the early discoverers of the internet and what the internet could do with information well, with I, the daily beast i launched the daily beast in 2008 right. um it was so much fun you know for me doing the daily beast was a bit like going back to editing Tatler when I was 25. Except this time, you know, I was the kind of the den duchess, if you like. I mean, I had all these young kids working for me, and I was the older one. 
But it, the great thing about the Daily Beast was it really was a combination of millennial energy and sort of veteran expertise because we combined really fantastic reporters who were somewhat older, like Michael Daly, the great uh, metropolitan writer, but with all of these young people that we found who've gone on then to do extraordinary things themselves. I mean, they all have had careers springing from it. My editor that we found has just been made uh, not just editor-in-chief of Time magazine, but CEO of Time magazine last week, Edward Felsenthal, who's Whoa, now, who was, the, uh, who was my executive editor at the Daily Beast. So again, you know, these people who we found uh, really went on to do great stuff. And the Daily Beast combined a kind of, it, it had some of the flavor really of a British upscale tabloid in a way, but had very good writing and all of that sort of energy that comes from uh, a kind of mm, sort of voracious approach to news. And after you stepped away from that, you, you're, you're not going to slow down. You started, <laughs> you started uh, Women in the World initiatives yeah. as well. Well, Women in the World Summit. I launched summit. it. I launched it. Um, I founded it while I was at the Daily Beast, actually. And then when I left the Daily Beast after five years, I decided I was going to take the Women in the World and spend my time developing it, which is what I have done. And so we've now done it all over the world. Um, women in the World is really essentially the convening of extraordinary women. Uh, who many of them unknown, most of them unknown, alongside, of course, women who are known, because otherwise, you know, you, you, you want to come and see Meryl Streep, and then you leave and you also talk about... Yeah, talk about the Meryl Streep of it. I mean, what you did is you had them, you had Meryl Streep acting, doing a one-person yes, show. Yes, well, Meryl, Meryl has, has been my co-host, actually, for, yeah. for many years, uh, has, has done it with me many times. She's done it, all kinds of stuff on the Women in the World stage. She has performed, she has read things. She has been on panels. She loves women in the world, which is incredibly um, gratifying to us because, of course, she helped hugely in the early years to get it uh, the traction that it got. But I think also people really leave talking about the women they haven't heard of. I mean, for instance, last year we had a remarkable woman who's an Australian sea captain who rescues um, refugees, uh, you know, out oh, of the, right, migrants right. out of the Mediterranean right. uh, ocean. We have an incredible doctor, Syrian doctor, who operates on the front lines in Aleppo. Um, these are the women that we find, um, the small group of journalists who work for me. How can, how can a listener access that? Online? Well, you can go online and, and uh, womenintheworld.com uh, uh, and you can see uh, the videos of the past summits. And also April, April next year is the 10th anniversary summit. Where and will you can the summit buy be? buy tickets and come. Where will it be in New York? It'll be in New York at Lincoln Center. Oh, that sounds yeah. remarkable. Um, this you said, and I think this puts what you're doing with that in perspective. You said you cannot suddenly separate the treatment of women from the treatment of all minorities and from the treatment of every single member of society and human rights in general. So you see your work being broader as well. I do. I mean, I, I do believe in that intersectional attitude to, to all of it, frankly. I mean, it's so, it's so important as well to enlist men as the champions, frankly, for, for women going forward. I mean, we've seen this huge explosion, obviously, since really since the Trump victory right. with the Women's March, which was the biggest single expression. Uh, it was the biggest single-day march in American history, actually, that Women's March. Yeah, I know. Was it was, I was in Dublin at the time. It, it was amazing. And there were 100,000 people in Dublin there marching were, and, down And frankly, you see in this last election wave how it has played out. Uh, it didn't go away. People thought, oh, well, that energy just died. No, it didn't. 100 new women going into the house. 100 new women have gone in. So there is a something big that's happening. And we at Women in the World really were at the forefront of that. I mean, we, we heard those rumblings early and have been 
promoting it as the next big global human rights movement right. is the truth, which is women, because it still hasn't really happened. I know, I know with a perspective of a week about, we had our midterm elections last Tuesday, we're almost a week away. And I know that, you know, some of the stars that we had looked at, whether it's Beto or Stacey Abrams or Andrew Gillum here in Florida, we don't quite know what's going to happen with the last two, but we lost Beto and he didn't win. But give us some hope. Give us a little bit of hope. Well, I think the hope is in those hundred women, frankly. Because you're seeing a great energy now coming out from the grassroots that is really there. I think what we should be excited about is the fact that Texas nearly went blue with Beto. I mean, nobody thought that he could get as far as he got. Absolutely. So now, you know, people thought, oh, it's disappointing those who cared, you know, or liked him, were so disappointed that he didn't win. But he got so close, which was a remarkable thing. And absolutely, I mean, he really did. And Stacey Abrams, I mean, for an African-American woman to be that close to being governor of Georgia, that's got to be a hugely hopeful thing. It says something very big is happening. Same with Florida. And the that, same with Florida. Yes. So I, I think that is the, the, the hopeful part, because I think, you know, 2020 is two years away. That dial may well continue to, to, to turn. And you will see the inclusion and empowering of so many more minorities, which is a, a, a great thing, because right now, uh, you know, the Senate particularly does not look like America, doesn't. I mean, I think it's still 9%, isn't it, women? In, yes. in, it, it's insane. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, and, and it's so white, you know? <laughs> I mean, we saw that in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings. hearings. I mean, you know, there was so, there was no minority faces there. Let me just say that um, the, the hope that I have is that, we have your voice still out there. Your voice is still out there in our cultural marketplace. And thank I thank you for all you've done. And thank I know you. that we have to rush off to get you to your event. But thank you for being on The Literary Life. And thank you for coming it's to the It's a wonderful show to be on. And I thank you so much. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.